Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, it's Claire here. You're used to hearing me on Money Clinic, but now you can find me in your inbox, teaching you everything you need to know about money with my new Sort Your Financial Life Out course. Over six weeks, I'll help you to make smarter money decisions with tips on budgeting, tax breaks, property, pay rises and investing. In short, everything you wanted to know about managing your money, but were far too busy to ask. To find out more and sign up for the course, visit ft.com slash money course. That's ft.com slash money course. As for today's episode... What are the tried and trusted investment strategies that have rewarded investors handsomely over the years, and could they still pay off in future? As market conditions become more challenging, experts are predicting that stock picking will make a comeback. If you're tempted to take the risky step of investing in the shares of individual companies, how on earth can you fathom which ones stand the best chance of doing well? On this investment masterclass, which we first aired back in the summer, we explore the data-driven world of stock screening. What it is, how to do it, and why today's special guest thinks there are four main ways to try to beat the market. Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast about personal finance and investing from the Financial Times. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. Now, on Money Clinic Podcast, we tend to talk a lot about investing in index funds, but we also know that there are listeners out there who are very interested in stock picking, picking the shares in individual companies that you think will go on to outperform the market. Now, obviously, that is a riskier strategy than spreading your bets among hundreds or thousands of firms. But nevertheless, it's something that in these turbulent times, people are interested in doing with either a very small proportion of their portfolio, or perhaps, if they're very confident, a larger one. And our guest on the podcast this week is somebody who is an absolute expert in narrowing down the pool of stocks that you might pick from. And he is called Algie Hall. Welcome to the podcast, Algie. Thank you very much for having me, Claire. So tell us a little bit about this book that you've written, Four Ways to Beat the Market. I love things that have such a compelling title um, <laughs> like that. <laughs> is it that simple? Well, the way to describe it is simple, but not easy. So um, the four ways to beat the market in the book are actually um, very well known. And there's a lot of empirical evidence that they work. And they are 
quality investing, value investing, momentum investing, and then also I call it dividend investing, but I think the academics who research it would refer to it as a low volatility. These are strategies to help you pick stocks, which can be seen as quite formulaic if you just follow the academic research. But the way my book tries to look at them is in, I suppose, a more homely way. Mm. So it's actually, you know, what is it behind these ideas which are important for your stock picking? Okay, before we go any further, I should say, as we say in our disclaimer every week, this is a podcast that discusses investment ideas. We're not giving you financial advice. We're not suggesting that the stocks that we mention are ones that you should necessarily put your money in or sell out of. That's up to you. And seek independent investment advice from a qualified financial advisor if you feel unsure about making your own decisions. But even if you think, well, I'm the kind of person, I like to play it safe, I'm not really sure if stock picking is for me, there will be things in this episode that you can pick up and learn from. And the discussion of the wider market trends with algae and how that might all be affected by what's going on in the news at the moment, I'm sure, will be an interesting lesson for you. Now, before we go on to talk about how you pick out and winnow down all of these thousands of stocks that are in the market into the ones that fulfil those four strategies. Let's hear a little bit more about you, Algie. Obviously, you're an author. You've written this book, Four Ways to Beat the Market. You're also a financial journalist. And I have to tell you, listeners, when I first started at the Financial Times Group in 2008 on the Investors Chronicle magazine, the person who I was put next to to shepherd me into the role of reporting on financial companies was none other than Algie. Was I a good student? Oh, absolutely. Claire, you were the best. Um, <laughs> well, I would have kicked you on the table if you'd said anything otherwise. But but you were the person whose sleeve I tugged and said, oh, looking at company accounts, balance sheets, have I quite got this right? I think this is okay, but I'm not a maths whiz. I got a B at GCSE maths. I didn't do maths A level. I'm able to understand and learn about all of these things. If I can do it, anyone can. Well, I think the thing that people find really scary is often the numbers side. But in actual fact, understanding investment is about understanding ideas far more than it's about understanding numbers. And the numbers are, is a kind of language, if you like. There are stories in the numbers. And once you've got past the initial fear and you know the basic principles, it's a lot easier to get your head around. And it's part two of your book that will really help people to develop that practical understanding of how company accounts really work. But back to the subject of this podcast, the four ways to beat the market. Now, these four strategies or stories, whatever you want to call them, different ways that different parts of the stock market have done well. First of all, the biggest problem is finding companies that match up to these strategies. Now, there's a way of doing that. It involves spreadsheets, but the shorthand term for it is a stock screen. So tell us, Algie, firstly, what is a stock screen? Well, essentially, it's a set of tests for stocks to pass. And if they pass all the tests, then they're stocks which are worth looking at in more depth. Okay, I get that. So you're basically screening out and screening in, narrowing down the pool of exactly. shares and based on a particular strategy, a set of tests. And we're going to discuss four common ones that you devised when you were at the Investors Chronicle. The first thing we're going to discuss is quality shares. 
But how does Audi define what makes the grade? So a quality share essentially is a company which can invest money back into its own business and make very good money from doing so. So it makes a high return on capital in the jargon. Also, it may have other characteristics. It may make a lot of profit from its sales, which signifies that it's selling something really special. So often companies, they'll um, start off making a lot of money on their sales, but then competition will come in and copy what they do, and they won't be able to make so much money. But a quality company has some kind of... Brand um, loyalty, I think. Exactly. Brand loyalty would be a perfect example. So a company like LVMH, the French luxury... Um, Louis uh, Vuitton. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think it has 75 different maisons making endless, incredibly high-priced items. <laughs> and people buy them. People love them because the brand and the heritage is so great. Well, I have to say, perhaps showing my snobbery, I might buy its shares, but I certainly would never, ever buy one of its handbags. <laughs> I'm too stingy, too stingy by half. OK, so the quality strategy, what are the pros and cons? Because I would imagine these kinds of companies might be as expensive as the goods they sell. Well, actually, I think you've kind of hit on it. The amazing thing about quality is that it exists at all as a phenomenon, because Normally, when a company is high quality, it's quite easy to observe. However, because the value these companies can create through something called compounding, which is a kind of key idea in finance, because the value is so great, you can actually still make amazing amounts of money out of it over time, as long as it remains a quality company and is growing. The danger, though, is that people often are easily fooled into thinking any growth company is a quality growth company. Real quality companies are few and far between. So the danger is that people overpay when the market's very excited about a certain type of stock. And I think in 2021, you can really look back at that period when people were paying eye-watering sums for growth stocks. And then there was a massive fall in the market. So give us some more examples of quality stocks that people might have heard of? So I think in the UK market, there's an amazing publisher called Relex, which controls huge amounts of data. It's an academic publisher. It was Reed Elsevier, I think. Yes. Before the corporate rebranding. It it rebranded to be even lower profile. Gosh, maybe you could have a stock screen for companies that have done weird (laughs) rebranding exercises. I wonder what that would throw up. So why are they quality? Well, they own a lot of data and people can't get that anywhere else because no one else has the data. And then also they have this big academic publishing business going through all these academic papers, approving them, putting them in their journals. And although the universities often get extremely annoyed about the amount of money they make out of that academic publishing business, actually the competitive advantage remains. So it's just one of those situations where no one can really get into the business that they do. Hmm. The longer they remain in business and continue collecting data and building up the academic journals, the better it is for them as well. So it gets harder for competitors to make any inroads and they make huge amounts of money from their business. Um, I suppose something like Diageo in the UK would also mm. be a great example of a quality business because of all its brands, its um, well, high-end drinks brands. fond of a tipple, as I am, <laughs> <laughs> um, then you may well know. Um, so, I mean, I think Smirnoff is one of the 
more famous ones. Yeah, yeah. I suppose some people in a cost of living crisis might be tempted to downgrade to a cheaper house spirit, but lots of people set a lot of store in having a recognisable brand in their hand. Absolutely. And I mean, it is one of the amazing things with these products, which you would assume was cyclical, you know, affected by the wider economic outlook. But they tend not to be so much. They tend to be luxuries which people persist with and really adore. I can't pay the mortgage, but I'm going to buy my, <laughs> my bottle of Smirnoff kind of thing. I can't compromise. Um, we all get comfort in different ways, don't we? <laughs> the second group of companies Algae thinks are worthy of further investigation are those that pay a dividend. If you're not sure what that is, listen up. So essentially, the best way to think about a dividend is it's money that a company has left over and they don't have anything really better to do with it. So they exhausted all their potential to invest money in the business and make a decent enough return to justify investing it. They don't have any issues on their balance. sheet. They don't have to pay back debt or anything like that. They're happy with their debt levels. And so what are they going to do with the money? The best thing to do is to return it to shareholders. So a dividend is often seen as a kind of gift to shareholders, but this can get people into a lot of trouble because it's totally zero sum. As soon as a company takes that money that was in its business and hands it back to its shareholders, its stock price falls by an equal amount. What's really interesting with dividend strategies is that conservative companies tend to outperform. And these are two hallmarks of a conservative company. The fact that they choose to hand back money to um, the shareholders rather than invested in dubious growth projects. And also um, the shares aren't very volatile, kind of confirming that these are conservative companies. So the dividend strategy is weird because it's like you're benefiting from what a company isn't doing, <laughs> which is quite an odd concept to get one's head round. But by not being all gung-ho and having a management which is... Slow and steady. Exactly. Slow and steady, really boring, and just like not going after the glory projects. These companies tend to just persist. They do well when times are tough, and they end up giving really large returns to people who own their shares. A further tip from me, reinvesting any dividends rather than spending them will help your investments grow and compound faster. Listen to our recent Investment Masterclass with Lord John Lee. For more on this, there's a link in today's show notes. Give us some examples, Algie, of companies that would fit within that dividend screen, whether you call them low volatility, boring, dependable. Give us a few names. So I suppose this is a name which has probably moved on, but in my book, JD Sport is one of the big successes of the dividend screen when I ran it. And really the charm of JD Sports was this very family owned at the time, but it was in trouble with an acquisition they had done of a company called Black's Leisure. What really stood out though was this company was still well financed, generating enough cash to reliably pay out the dividend and was clearly not being wayward. It was addressing its problems. And once they sorted out this issue they had with the acquisition they had made, the real value of the business started to emerge and people saw that it had a competitive advantage in selling high-end sports shoes and sports gear, which was based on its relationships with the major suppliers like Nike and Adidas. So the dividend was the clue that this was a healthy company with a healthy business behind what looked like a really quite a troubled story. Mm. 
And give us some more examples of dividend payers. I suppose the the oil stocks are the classic ones that pay a dividend year after year, although that may be a bad example. Well, it's a really interesting example, I think, because oil stocks in some ways pay a dividend to make up for the fact that their businesses aren't stable at all. So um, my screen for dividend paying stocks really never highlighted many oil stocks. Because so just paying a dividend very, alone is not... No, yeah, you have to be a stable business. And um, oil companies aren't stable. So you're actually, you're getting a high yield because the risk of that dividend disappearing is quite high. You're not locking into this kind of dull and conservative story that's super attractive. So the duller, the better. The duller, the better, <laughs> yeah. It's the moral of that story. <laughs> the next strategy Algie talked about was momentum investing in companies that are going places. Yes, this is quite a high-risk strategy, especially compared to the dividend strategy, which tries to control risk. So um, momentum is a really curious thing because it feels like it shouldn't be there because it's about buying stocks which have already gone up. So intuitively, you think, I've missed the boat. This is no longer an interesting story. But actually, what loads and loads of studies have found is that when stocks go up, the tendency is they carry on going up. There's something good happening normally behind the scenes, which is propelling the share price higher. The strategy in the book marries that kind of price momentum with earnings momentum. And specifically, it looks for situations where brokers who forecast earnings for the future for companies, they're having to upgrade those forecasts all the time. And those two trends complement each other really nicely. And they slightly protect from the major risk of momentum, which is the market gets carried away, which is part of the reason why momentum is so profitable. But then suddenly you'll wake up and go, oh, my goodness, (laughs) we're all all far too overexcited. And what we thought was the next great thing isn't at all. And, you know, suddenly the bubble will go pop. And there'll be a whipsaw reversal, which could be hugely painful. But if you have the earnings momentum in there as well as the price momentum, it slightly limits the damage that's going to be done. Now, I guess examples of that whipsaw phenomenon, as you say, could be some of the stocks that we saw really, really outperform in the pandemic when yes. consumer habits changed, perhaps Peloton. Yes, exercising indoors. <laughs> no one's doing that anymore. And then maybe stocks like Ocado. People did lots and lots of online shopping and people thought, right, this is the future. And then now that people can go back to the shops and maybe want to go to cheaper shops, that's seen a lot of the wind taken out of Absolutely. its sales. I mean, I, I would add AO World, which was actually a stock highlighted by the screen, which completely blew up in, <laughs> in the aftermath of that huge excitement. And That period was really interesting because when we started out in lockdown, there was an understanding that we were going to see things which wouldn't persist. And really, everyone was talking about that pretty much the whole way through. Yet so many people ended up on the bandwagon because it's so hard to see beyond what's actually happening. You know, something which has been a trend is only temporary and will reverse. So I think it's really interesting in terms of how our psychology works and why, on the one hand, momentum can be so beneficial if you're following it in a smart way, but also can be so treacherous if you do what most people do, which is join in at the end, just when the market's about to turn. Can you give us a good example of a share with momentum that's managed to 
maintain that momentum? I think there's a share which is called Ashstead, which hires out equipment mainly in America for building. And it's doing especially with, with data centers now. But this is a company where it buys in loads of equipment. And then the more demand it finds there is, the more it can rent it out for and the longer it stays out with people who are paying money to have it. And so it's particularly well suited to pushing upgrades through from brokers because the brokers will have an assumption which is relatively conservative in terms of, you know, we think they may be able to have this equipment out on hire X percent of the time for X amount of money. And then if there's some really strong trends in its end markets, you can have the forecast being pushed up and up and up and up because it's so sensitive to good news, essentially. And it's had a lot of good news. In the US, hiring is relatively new compared to ownership. So in the US, you've got this structural trend, as they call it, of more companies hiring more staff. And you've also got people loving to build data centers at the moment. Yeah, gosh, one of my summer jobs, I worked inside a data center. I mean, windowless buildings full of air conditioning units and whirring computer servers. I mean, this was about 22 years ago when they were in their My infancy. Word. But yeah, very, very strange, <laughs> strange world of the data centre. But then this is the thing about stock screens. It will throw up companies that you may never have heard of for you to then go off and investigate further and find Absolutely. out things that you wouldn't otherwise pick just through your own biases or interests. No, absolutely. They're there to kind of shake you out of your normal thought process and suggest something new. Last but not least, Algae's final bargain-hunting stock screen is contrarian value. But what does this actually mean? The idea basically is to find stocks which have been doing really badly in companies which kind of have some issues and then buying them close to the bottom, hopefully. Bottom so fishing. Into, yes, <laughs> indeed, the elegantly named bottom fishing. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the amazing thing is that sometimes people get so downbeat on a company that even when it's still fairly substantial, it can be pushed to evaluation, which means any good news is going to really see those shares take off. What the screen tries to do, it starts off by looking for really persistent sales and then it looks for the ones which have a really low valuation against sales. And the reason for looking to sales is that often you want to be buying companies when profits are really low, which sounds crazy. But when you're looking for stocks which are cheap, often it's at a time when they're not earning very much money. They're not very profitable. But they've got the potential. They've got the potential. To be profitable if there's something that comes along to cause a re-rating. But I think quite a common feature is that you have stocks affected by something which is outside their control, but which you can expect to change over time. Could be a chief executive leaving suddenly. It could be something like that. And also, at the moment, it could be to do with inflation in cost, something like that, something to do with supply chains. It could just be to do with fears about the economic cycle. So we have a lot of house builders and car dealers which are extremely cheap by their historic standards because we're very fretful about a recession. But also we've seen quite a few companies taken over because there are other people out there who are looking at them now and saying, well, actually... They're not going to be cheap for but, um, That won't last forever. 
Mm. So give me some examples of actual companies that fit into this contrarian value category. Well, I think some interesting companies at the moment are the big oil and gas companies. There's a lot of pessimism about whether they'll be able to stay in business in the future, because obviously the energy transition is something that has to happen. Or be hit by some kind of swinging carbon tax. Exactly, exactly. Regulation is very unpredictable. But it's the type of situation where these are all external issues. And the shares are incredibly cheap, though, if you look at them on any normal um, valuation basis. So, Algie, you've taken us through these four stock screens that you wrote about in the Investors Chronicle for more than 10 years. They continue to write about every week. Now, for the period that your book covers, which is roughly the 10 years up to 2021, give us an indication of how market-beating those strategies have proved. Um, The quality screen was the best, though I should say as a caveat, what came out best over 10 years isn't necessarily going to come out best over the next 10 years. Of course. But the quality screen produced a cumulative total return of 508%. Now put that into context. If I'd invested a pound in this? So one pound, you would have five pounds and eight pence. Okay. So actually, if we add in fees, though, you'd have a bit less. I've only, I'd put my fees at 1.5%. You'd have four pounds, 22 pence. But nevertheless, quadrupled your money. Yeah, you would have quadrupled your money. So if you put in one million pounds, you'd have four million pounds. See, that, that's, that's where we differ. I'm like, one pound, you're like, one million. I'm such a safety conscious investor. No, one pound sounds far more level-headed. Okay, so quality shares were the winner. A bit of a gulf between numbers two, three and four, but the next one was dividends. Yes, the next one was dividends. So quality shares outperformed the index by 388%. Dividends outperformed the index by 267%. Not so boring now. Not so boring now, exactly. And also, they did actually have quite a tough time when we went into lockdown. Because lots of dividends were cut. Lots of dividends were cut, but they still did hold up better than the market overall. And then the next one is momentum, which outperformed by 262%. Okay, so not far off dividends. No, not far off. And then value, which outperformed by 242% over the decade. Wow, so that's investing in those companies that look like they're cheap but could come back in the future. That's what we mean by value. I mean, even though that was the one that did the least well of the four, I mean, 242% over 10 years or so. Yeah, no, it's definitely not to be sniffed at. Okay. Now, for people who are inspired by this podcast and want to learn more about stock screens, obviously they can buy your book, Four Ways to Beat the Market, which is published by Harriman House. It's out in the shops now. They can also read the weekly stock screens column, which continues. Our colleague upstairs, Alex Newman, is writing that for the Investors Chronicle. But if people were inspired to try and maybe create their own stock screen, what practically would they need to be able to do that? Well, you need data. You can normally get a subscription to a good data service for a couple of hundred quid. Either you can pull it into a spreadsheet or most data services have their own screening tools and you have to assess them to see if they're going to do what you want. It's very important to kind of road test the data services and There are two in the UK which also cover international stocks, which I personally think are very good. 
ShareScope, also known as SharePad, and there's also one called Stockopedia. Thank you. Well, if you're an investment geek like Algae, um, <laughs> I'm sure there's endless hours of fun for you in that. But for those of us who like reading about investment stories, you always had a stack of books on your desk at the Investors Chronicle. What are the ones that you would say to podcast listeners who are interested in investing in general, but particularly stock picking and valuing companies, understanding accounts, what are the, the books that you would recommend? Well, other than your own, of course. Other than my own. <laughs> I wouldn't be so modest. Uh, um, we had a reading list on the Investors Chronicle, actually. After your time, Claire, there were three books. One is The Little Book That Builds Wealth, mm. which explains how companies can gain a competitive advantage. And then there's another one, which is also a little book. It's called The Little Book of Behavioral Investing, which explains how we're all basically set up to make poor investment decisions, unfortunately. Biased. But, yeah. <laughs> but the main thing is it's really good to just know what the common pitfalls are because you will have to put systems in place to stop yourself from falling into them. Knowing about them isn't enough. And also realising that you're not different because one of our biases is that we all think biases don't apply to us. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. <laughs> um, and then the, the final book was How to Pick Quality Shares, which is written by another former IC writer called Phil Oakley. That book explains how to use company accounts and how to understand ratios and things like that. But it's written in a very easy-to-understand way. He's a straight-talking Yorkshireman, Phil. Certainly is. And, um, <laughs> so that would be the other book. Fantastic. Well, a great little summer reading list there for all of our dedicated investor listeners. And of course, add to it Algie's own book, Four Ways to Beat the Market, which is published by Harriman House. Now, Algie, this book is incredibly impressive. There's lots of investment strategy talk, lots of fine numbers, lots of really hard work that you've put into this. But it's not your first book, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is not. Well, yeah, my normal books, well, my normal books, uh, 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 children's picture books. So I think my first ever book was about a frog who has lots of baby brothers and sisters and is slightly traumatised but then learns to love it. And <laughs> I've done many more picture books since then. So I think my picture books outnumber my finance books by about 11 to 1. But, I mean, you are a polymath. You are a fantastic <laughs> illustrator and an investment expert and fine journalist. Well, I, I stumbled into um, financial journalism whilst trying to be a successful illustrator. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know how that works. But <laughs> Well, you can be good at more than one thing and you clearly are. Algie, it's been so lovely to have you in the podcast studio and catch up again. Feels like old times. It, it does. Great to be here. Thank you. If only we could go back then and buy all of the shares that you've <laughs> written about in this book and then we'd never have to work a day in our lives again. But thank you very, very much for joining us on Money Clinic today. That's it for this week. We do hope that you've enjoyed what you heard. And if you have liked the show today, then please give us a review. We're always open to your ideas. If you'd like to be a future guest on the podcast, then you can get in touch with us. Our address is money at ft.com. And of course, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. This week's episode was produced by Lawrence Knight and Philippa Goodrich. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragossa, and the sound design was by Breen Turner, with original music from Metaphor Music. 
Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And finally, our usual disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.